You're listening to Soundbite, the podcast that's food for your ears. I'm Celine Roberts. For this episode, I'll be taking you to Conflict Kitchen, a restaurant and art project in Oakland that only serves cuisine from countries that the U.S. is in conflict with. Their current menu iteration is Haudenosaunee. The Haudenosaunee, also known as the Iroquois Confederacy, are a group of indigenous North American peoples. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy is made up of six nations, Seneca, Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Tuscarora. Initially, I was planning to produce an episode focused entirely on the food of the Haudenosaunee, but I found that so much of the importance and significance of this food are the narratives of the Haudenosaunee people who are its stewards. We'll hear from Don Waleski, co-founder and co-director of The Conflict Kitchen, Lauren Jimerson, Seneca Nation, Heron Clan of the Iroquois White Corn Project, and Ronnie Ryder, Seneca Nation, Wolf Clan, Park Supervisor of the Ganondagan State Historic Site. In this food and these stories is a little piece of living history and a tie back to reclaiming Native heritage. My name is Dawn Waleski and I am co-founder and co-director of Conflict Kitchen. How long have you been working on the Haudenosaunee iteration? This iteration's research started back prior to Indigenous Peoples Day 2015 when we were approached by several people in the community to work with them to create an Indigenous Peoples Day celebration on Columbus Day and to highlight the opinions and perspectives and the cuisine of uh, Indigenous people and we decided to concentrate on the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which is made up of, of six nations closest to Pittsburgh of indigenous people, um, AKA the Iroquois Confederacy, and uh, concentrate on a longer iteration to provide more in-depth discussion and programming about not only the history, but the contemporary conflicts that exist between the US government and the Haudenosaunee people. Are there any stories that stick out to you from your visits to these communities? In terms of food, the, this iteration is different than any other because the food that is provided on this menu, you're not accessing the cuisine through a spice necessarily or a flavor profile that is going to come through additional herbs, but it's about the, the, the base uh, ingredients in the cuisine. Um, the potatoes, the beans, the squash, the tomatoes. So you're, it's about tasting those foods without the assistance or the aid of an herb or a spice or a salt. So for the most part, a lot of people have described, that are Haudenosaunee, um, have described the food as bland, but not with a negative connotation associated to that word. So it's been more about so for us it's about highlighting the cuisine without dressing it up too much because that would just reinforce this notion of you know cultural appropriation that we do see going on around Pittsburgh with um, people dressing up as chiefs and princesses in Sharpsburg for the Gaiasuda festival and wearing feathers that have no relationship to any nation from here. Um, so we've found that to be a bit of the challenge of maintaining a level of closeness to um, the wishes of 
the people that we've met with that are Haudenosaunee concerning their food and also presenting elements of the cuisine that are that the Haudenosaunee find problematic for example fry bread so fry bread comes from uh, after Haudenosaunee people were moved and, and you'll find this in a number of indigenous cultures within the United States moved off of their land and their land began to shrink and they were put on reserves then they were sometimes afforded rations from the United States government, which included oils, they never used salt, um, white bleached flour, and you would have it in a scone-like form because it would stay softer for longer. Uh, and then that eventually, that fry bread, particularly because of the influence of Western indigenous cultures, the fry bread became flattened, and now today you'll find at most powwows something called an Indian taco, which is the flat fry bread with taco meat and shredded lettuce and cheese and tomatoes and onions. And that, although is, you might not say is authentic or traditional to Haudenosaunee cuisine 400 years ago, it certainly is very much a part of the story of the cuisine and of the people today. So I think this iteration has been one of the most taxing iterations emotionally because along with our Juneteenth iterations that were very short and the Indigenous Peoples Day last year, because we are working with people that are so close to home and that are, um, that are Americans and that are being treated like foreigners within their own country. Um, and not only that, the fact that we are the people that have crossed into their territory um, as Americans and that this is, this is their land and these are their stories. And so figuring out a way to sensitively and res responsibly frame those stories and provide the, the right, and, and to educate ourselves in a way so that we can provide the, the right framework for those um, for those stories has been difficult, and I think that's the some of the danger, but also importance of us working with this iteration is that we do need to be self-reflective, as you know, mostly within our management. Um, it's male, I'm female, but all of the management at Conflict Kitchen is white and it's run by two white artists that are in Pittsburgh. And so being very aware of that and wanting to be self-critical um, and also encouraging Pittsburgh to be self-critical about that gap in knowledge has been, um, and, and, and even when one comes to a little bit of that knowledge, still feeling like there's um, such a ways to go not only in knowledge, but in gaining a true sense of empathy, that it's important that we had a longer indigenous iteration and focus to indigenous people that are, that are close to home and some that are in Pittsburgh. My name is Lauren Jimerson. I'm the project manager at the Iroquois White Corn Project. Um, I'm actually fairly new. I've been there for about about two months, but I've been involved not really since the inception, but like it actually was created at the Cattaraugus Indian Reservation in 2000 
but then it kind of stopped um, because the founder, John Mohawk, had, had passed away suddenly in 2006, I believe. And so in 2008, um, we decided to move it to um, Ganondagan State Historic Site in Victor, New York. It's a really important project because, you know, we're bringing this heirloom food and bringing it back to life. But the other thing is, like, there's a history attached to it where it was actually grown at Ganondagan State Historic Site when it was a Seneca village in the 1600s. So there was a time where campaign was actually ordered to come through and burn down the village. But the people there had learned about it, and so they had enough time to kind of flee. But they left many things behind, and one thing that they left behind was their granary down the hill. So the army that came through was actually um, from New France, or what we know as Canada. And so when they got there, the people had burned down their own homes and left. So when they found a granary, they burned all the corn that was there. And it was a half a million bushels of white corn that was burned. So bringing the white corn back to Ganondagan is actually very symbolic. It says a lot about the survival of the food, but also the survival of our people, you know, the Seneca people. I myself am Seneca. Our site manager, Peter Jemison, he's Seneca. So we have Seneca people there. We also have people who are um, from other nations working, but, you know, it's good to have the Seneca people at the site, but also have the Seneca food there. That's a little history about the white corn on the white corn project. Is there anything special nutritionally about white corn? There is. I think people are familiar with sweet corn, which is actually, you know, a hybridized corn. White corn actually has a great nutritional value. It's low glycemic, quite the opposite of sweet corn. It's a complete carbohydrate, and when you pair it with squash and beans, which is, you know, what we've done here with this pumpkin chili, it becomes a complete, you know, like a perfect food for your body. Corn beans and squash, um, we actually refer to as the three sisters, or, you know, joheko, which is actually what Conflict Kitchen is going by for the Haudenosaunee iteration. Joheko actually means that which sustains us, but it refers to those three sisters, because they are a very important part of the traditional Iroquois diet, or Haudenosaunee diet. The, the three sisters are planted together in a mound, and um, it's actually more effective than um, what's called, what's referred to as monoculture. It's actually um, what you would, what that, the word for that mound planting of those three plants together would be like a permaculture. And so those three plants actually feed each other. Um, the corn goes in first, and you know, the, the stock grows. And then the beans are planted, and the beans will crawl up the corn stalk, but they also put nitrogen into the soil for the corn. And then the squash is planted, and what the squash does is it has these broad leaves, so moisture will collect on the leaves, and that keeps the soil moist for, for all the plants to grow together. So they, you know, I think in various senses of the word, they really are three sisters, you know, they work together. Yeah. <laughs> what are you all doing here today with Conflict Kitchen? 
Well, today we did a traditional hardwood ash washing. Corn in its raw form cannot be digested. It's undigestible. Um, so it has to go through um, an ash washing. So we use hardwood ashes. What you do is you sift the ashes and you get the big wood chunks out. See if this is worth And then you um, boil it with the corn and the ashes have lye in it. So it'll soften the hull. And so um, you can remove it using a um, corn washing basket. We actually have basket makers that make these baskets that are made specifically for this process. So you can scrub the, the corn like on the sides of the basket and it'll remove the hulls and then it has these large holes at the bottom so that you can rinse, it'll rinse the hulls right through the basket. Um, so, you know, this is a food that you have to kind of work for, but it's uh, also really good for you. Um, removing that hull not only makes it digestible, but it releases the nutrients. <laughs> How has the knowledge been kept alive? The knowledge has been kept alive by people just passing it on through the families. My, my grandfather actually cultivated the corn. He would wash the corn. And I actually interviewed my aunt for this cookbook project that we did. And, you know, I learned how the process was passed on to her and he my grandfather actually was using um, lot, like you know a chemical lye to do the washing, but she so when he taught her, that's the way he taught her. But she requested to learn the ash, you know, use the the hardwood ashes, and she said, you know, that after that, he actually never went back to using the, the lye. He's you know, and so and that's what I grew up seeing was my mom doing the. You know, washing the corn with ashes, my aunt, my uncle, all of them used the hardwood ashes to wash the corn. So I grew up watching that. Um, and my older son, he's here, but he's taking a break. <laughs> he learned the process today, the real hardwood ash washing process. He's seen it, but never really, you know, put his hands on it. So today was the first day he was... He did it. That was me just like oh, right. passing that down to you know the next generation. Now we'll hear about the lives of Ronnie Ryder and Lauren Jimerson. Degenoso Negan Gaso, Onantawakani, Okatayoni. Good evening. That was my uh, greeting to you in Seneca. I'm a member of the Seneca Nation of Indians. So the first thing I did was offer thanks that you're all here and you're healthy. And in today's environment, that is such a huge, huge gift. I offer thanks, honor, and respect to the Creator for the beautiful day that we've had. But even in the winter time, when it's snowing, it's blowing, it's freezing cold, we still offer thanks for each and every one of the elements because those elements help the earth to do her job. And I said her job because as native people, we think of the earth as mother earth. We think of what's in our, our, within our environment as our relatives. And Mother Earth has a huge job 
a huge responsibility to fulfill. If she doesn't fulfill her responsibilities of all the green plant life and the trees and the grasses, as people, we're not gonna survive for too long. And so I told you who I am. I gave you my Seneca name. It actually is a very old name and it translates to two of the traditional bark longhouses that stand near each other. And I told you I'm Seneca, but in our language, Seneca means nothing to us. We describe ourselves as people of the great hill, and that's what Onundawaka, a lot of times you will see that <clears throat> on license plates, on bumper stickers, whatever. That's the Seneca Nation. And the very last thing I told you was my family or clan. I come from the Wolf Clan, and my family also comes from the Cattaraugus Reservation south of Buffalo. But unlike Goody, I was not raised on the, on the reservation, although I was born there. Um, by three, my family had moved to Buffalo, and my father was killed in an accident at which point the Erie County Welfare Department stepped in and took me and my brother away from my mom for whatever reasons and placed us in non-native foster home. Over my lifetime, um, up to 18 years, I was in two foster homes and actually not so far from Cattaraugus, but I might as well have been raised in Russia for whatever culture was to, um, I was to learn because it was only a couple days in fourth grade and maybe seventh grade that we even covered that in school. So I grew up not knowing my culture and traditions. I grew up not knowing my language. I grew up not knowing my family. When I would be in school and my girlfriends would talk about their grandparents or their cousins or aunts or uncles that came to visit, they were always so excited when family members came. And in my head, I didn't have any pictures stored up there of anybody. I was raised with one younger brother and one younger sister, and that was my family. Now, I had two foster families. The first foster family was not a great experience. The second uh, family that I spent the last six years with, be, um, including my graduation, was on a farm. And remarkably enough, I went to Iroquois Central High School. <laughs> but Iroquois Central in Alma, New York is one of the schools in New York that has all out refused to change their mascot of the Iroquois Chiefs, no matter how many letters I write. Um, but that's a whole other issue. <laughs> so in my, um, in my lifetime, not knowing my family, it was like I was always, I never felt like I belonged or um, I never hit mental images of family. Um, I got married and when I had my children, that's when family really became important to me. And as I shared things as my babies got older, then it was like, where is your grandma? And my kids didn't know any of my family until they were about 
10 and 12, maybe 12 and 14, somewhere in there. I had a couple um, experiences. I went and I looked up my family that lived in Buffalo. I thought it was a good idea to go and find my mom before I left the state. At the time I was married and my husband was leaving, we were actually leaving New York State because of his sales job. So in a panic, my younger sister and I decided we would go and find my mom. So we journeyed to Buffalo and knocked on her door. And she um, was not in a very good state that day. And there was no recognition of either one of us, although when she asked us our names, who are you? I gave her the name that she'd given me at birth and there was no recognition at all. So after a few minutes of being very uncomfortable, we just said our goodbyes and I left. I left her house and I left Buffalo that day. And I said, you know what? I'm in my 30s, I've got my own family, I've gotten this far. I really don't need any more doors slammed in my face from my immediate family. And so I was hurt and I was very angry and I left. Well, over the next seven years, I traveled with my uh, husband and my children on the move for his career. And uh, we moved about every 12 to 18 months, which when you have children in school is pretty tough. Um, I finally decided I had had enough and I took my children and I came back to New York State. And for me, that was coming home in more ways than one because once I got here, I decided that yes, I would find my mom before something happened to her and before time had, enough time had passed that it was bugging me again. And so I went back to the reservation to vote in our election. And while I was there with my brother, ran into one of my younger sisters that I had never met. He had met her, but I hadn't. And so she gave, um, she took my hand and she wrote my mom's phone number on it. And she said, you should really call Ma. And I said, I can't, I can't do that. But when I got home, I took that phone number and I put it in my phone book. And the holidays came and I picked up the phone and I tried to call her and I couldn't. January came and I knew I was going back to my reservation for our 10 day midwinter ceremony. And I figured I would run into my mom and some of my family. So I thought I better pave the way. So this time I called my mom and she answered the phone and she was in a much better state. She had moved out of the city of Buffalo she had become sober. The doctor told her if she didn't, it would end up killing her, and she quit cold turkey. And as far as I know, she's not had a drop since. This time when um, she said, who is this? And I said, this is Ronnie. She said, Ronnie, my daughter. And I felt like a weight had been lifted from my shoulders. There was recognition there. And so from that point, my mom and I began a relationship. And I made it a point whenever I went home to visit her, I called her, um, I really made an effort to get to know her. And, and she was doing pretty good, but after a few years, it's kind of like she put the brakes on and 
I couldn't get past this certain point, and I could feel it, but I didn't know what it was. And I thought that I had said or done something to offend her. And it was bugging me. And um, I went to this lecture and I saw one of my cousins in this film about the boarding schools. And ironically enough, we had a boarding school on the Cattaraugus territory and it was called the Thomas Indian School, which was really an oxymoron. It was the Thomas Non-Indian School. And my mom was raised in the Indian School, which meant she was not raised by my grandparents she was not raised with her siblings. And until I heard my cousin's daughter comment in the film about how hard it was growing up and having her dad so angry and so distant and not being a warm person, all of a sudden I heard those words and it was the Thomas Indian School. And it, it just clicked for me right then and there that's why she is the way she is. She can only give what she received, and she didn't receive much. Being in the boarding school was not a picnic for these Native children. And so I consider myself very lucky. I've had a really enlightening and fulfilling journey following my culture, finding out who I am as a Seneca woman, how to be a better mother to my two sons. Um, I worked at a museum. I ended up at Ganondigan State Historic Site, and um, I'm a park supervisor within the, the site. I'm also um, our site manager's office manager, so I do all the office end of running our staff. When I first started 16 years ago, we were a staff of three and a half people. Today, we're a staff of 18. Last year, we just opened our brand new Seneca Art and Culture Center. So I consider myself very fortunate. And most days, my job, I don't feel like it's a job. I'm very happy. I get to talk to visitors from all over the world. And I would say that 99% of our visitors who come to Ganondigan are very respectful and very inquisitive. And so I get to talk about the history of my ancestry. I get to talk about current issues that are still happening today. And I found my family. I'm the oldest of my mom's 10 children. I am one of 52 first cousins. My mom was one of 13, my dad was one of 10. So to grow up with one brother and one sister that you know is your immediate family, and now when I go on uh, our territory and I'm with people, uh, friends and family, and then I run into someone else and they'll say, well, that one over there, she's your cousin, and that one over there, that's your auntie. It's a little overwhelming when you go from three to 80 or 90, 100, whatever. But like I said, I consider myself really very fortunate. My journey has been a good one and I continue to learn. And I guess if I had to say something to you all, you should find a tradition that your family did maybe with your grandparents that kind of fell by the wayside 
And maybe it's time to bring that tradition back and, and really research who you are and where you came from. Nyawa. These issues with the educational institution still exist in this generation. This is Lauren describing what it was like when her son's school forbade him from wearing the traditional Seneca adornments at his graduation ceremony. Um, you know, which kind of scared the pants uh, of the school. And so, you know, they're like, oh, we're going to have a meeting. We're going we're gonna to discuss it even further. And I said, well, I want to weigh in too. So I sent them an article, you know, about the importance of wearing the eagle feather. But I also sent a picture of me wearing the adornments, but and a picture of me with my kids while I'm wearing my adornments. And I just said, you can't imagine the immense pride you have from you know showcasing who you are where you're from being native and the educational institutions were a way of stripping us of our cultural identity this is us reclaiming that identity and so obviously we we won <laughs> and angels wearing our adornments and so this is me and my kids we're tight-knit little bunch. <laughs> People think we're siblings, but we're not. <laughs> and so I wanted to leave with this. I have taken longer to obtain each of my college degrees. It has taken me longer because I have had to battle myself each step of the way. Throughout, I have fought against my tendencies of undiagnosed anxiety, depression, bouts of self low self-esteem, alcoholism and cognitive distortions, which are tiny voices in my head that tell me that I am not good enough or strong enough and that nobody cares about me. I was an impoverished teenage mom that came from an Indian reservation who didn't even finish high school. I am not supposed to be here. I am against all of the odds. This has been my life for the past 10 years and what I have to say is that I made it. I made it this far. I intend to go further. I have plans. I have direction. I am good enough, strong enough, and everybody cares about me. It no longer matters to me how long it has taken, how many times that I didn't make the Dean's List or earn a 4.0. What matters is that time and time again, I have refused to let my demons win. My love prevails, and I wish the same for you. My wish is for you to not give in, not give up, and not leave your dreams behind. My wish is for you to refuse the norms, redefine statistics, refuse the acceptance of stereotypes, and live an authentic happiness. Find yourself because that is the most valuable treasure that you will ever find. For more information on the Iroquois White Corn Project, visit www.iroquoiswhitecornproject.org. For the menu and upcoming events at Conflict Kitchen, visit www.conflictkitchen.org. Special thanks to both organizations for making this podcast possible. Until next time, go out and have yourself a food adventure. <laughs>